Good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang together that the ones uh, who seek you find that you're good. And so we pray that we would find that to be true this morning. That those of us who seek you would find you to be good. So we know that you are good and we know that it will be by the power of your spirit that you will show us that. And so that's what we ask. Meet every one of us by your spirit in the places where we are. Those of us here this morning who have faith and and those of us who don't, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who feel far from you, meet us wherever we are and show us how much you love us in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we started back into our series talking together about what Christians believe. Uh, We've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide to doing that. And this morning we're going to look at the line that says that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So there are a couple of lines in the Creed uh, that consistently draw uh, comments and questions. Uh, One of them is the line about Jesus descending into hell. The question that is usually asked about that is something like, what does that mean? Um, We talked about that back in November, so if you missed it, you can go back and uh, listen to that. And the second line that people often wonder about is the line that we're going to talk about this morning, the one where we affirm that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And in particular, people often wonder about that word Catholic and and what does it mean uh, in the context that we're using it. And it can be confusing, so I want to say something about it. It is, I think, first, very, very important to remember that this line in the Creed was written long before there was anything called the Roman Catholic Church, and even longer before there was anything called the Eastern Orthodox Church, and way, way, way before there was ever anything called a Protestant Things like Lutherans and Anglicans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists hadn't even been dreamed of yet. And I think, honestly, that that's one of the reasons why this creed teaching here, this part of the creed, is so powerful. The word uh, that's translated Catholic in our English versions goes back through the Latin to a Greek word that just means according to the whole or universal. So when the creed talks about the Catholic Church, it isn't naming a specific uh, branch of the historic church or a specific denomination. It is saying something simple and something profound and something that I think we very much need to hear again and again. And that's this. There is one church. There is one church, and her good news is valid and true and meaningful and life-giving across every age and for every people in every conceivable context. There is one church, and she has good news, and it is for everyone, everywhere, in all places and at all times. I think that's really important for early 21st century American Christians to hear, but honestly, I think it is important for every human being to hear wherever they find themselves, hopefully 
why I think that will become more clear. So this morning, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul says about the church in Ephesians 2. So I'm going to read Ephesians 2, uh, verses 17 through 22. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So back at the beginning of November, uh, I took a trip to my hometown, Baltimore. Um, I got to see the, the Ravens beat the Patriots, which was, of course, nice. Um, but the best part of that trip, the thing that I will take with me uh, for a long time, was spending time with a bunch of old friends, some of whom that I hadn't seen for more than 20 years. I got off the airplane, and in less than an hour, I was sitting down with these guys, sitting down over dinner, uh, laughing, getting nostalgic, telling stories, getting caught up about where we are in our lives in the present. I have to say, I, I felt at home with them, like we just picked up exactly where we had left off more than 20 years ago. It felt great. Well, the next morning I had some time on my hands, so I went uh, to the neighborhood that I grew up in. And my plan was, of course, to soak in the whole old neighborhood. Um, but mainly I wanted to see the home that I had spent the first 18 years of my life in. So I parked down the block and I got out of the car and I started walking towards my childhood home. <laughs> and when I got out in front of the house, I just stood there in front of it, just you know, staring at it, regarding it for a little while. Uh, and then I took my phone out and I started taking some pictures of the house. And eventually, I stepped up a little off of the street into the yard so I could get some more pictures from what I thought would be a good angle. And that's when someone stepped out of the front door of my house and suspiciously said to me, what are you doing? <laughs> Can I help you? Which, of course, totally makes sense because it isn't my house, it's his house. I'm sure it was creepy to see me gawking at it. I'm sure it was strange to see me taking pictures of it. But I have to tell you, in that second, I went from that feeling of home and settledness to feeling like an outsider, to feeling like a stranger. I felt dislocated. I, I felt unsettled. Now, I don't want to leave you hanging. It worked out with that guy. He ended up um, being really kind. He didn't invite me in, which is what I would have wanted, um, but he was a nice guy. But even so, I, I felt weirdly stung about it all day. 
felt sad about it. And I think that's because of something that we all know to be true, even if we don't talk about it a lot or even if we don't really know how to talk about it, and that is that part of being a human is to have a deep desire to be at home, to have a place where we can be. And of course, that longing is not just for a physical place, although sometimes a physical place is part of it. That longing is for something deeper than that, something more, a place where we know and can be known, a place that is safe for us to be who we are. And when we don't have that, we feel lost. Well, in the passage that we just read together, that's how the Apostle Paul talks about the church. For Paul, the church is, is not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a library of doctrines stored up somewhere. It is the place where we live with our people. It's our family. And maybe to our surprise, it certainly always surprises me, Paul says that this family that's gathered together, collected together, worshiping together, doing life together, serving together, this family doing those things together turns out to be the place where God himself dwells. And that's what the church is. It is our home and God's home in this broken world. It's our home and God's home in the broken world. And so I think that means the church is probably a bigger deal than any of us really might have expected or been prepared to concede this morning. So Paul begins in verse 17 by writing that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. So, of course, we're jumping into the middle of things in this letter, so let me do my best to summarize what Paul has said before this to his friends. I mean, this letter is written to churches that are made up mostly of non-Jewish converts to Christianity. Um, in other words, the people who are reading this letter, most of them are just ordinary, everyday pagans who had been happily moving through life or maybe unhappily moving through life, I don't know. And then through some means or another, they heard this story about Jesus and it turned their lives upside down. <laughs> they had, almost inexplicably really, they had come to believe that an itinerant Jewish peasant from a minuscule town they had never heard of before, who had been executed on a Roman cross. They had somehow come to believe that he was the creator God himself and that his resurrection and his ascension means that they can be forgiven of their sins and they can be set at peace and with the entire created order, they could be made new again. So when Paul writes that Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far off, the people who are reading that letter, they know that it means them. <laughs> that's us. Because <laughs> that's who they were. Not just geographically, but in every other way that you can think of. Right? They had nothing at all to do with Judaism. Not in their thinking about God or God's not in their moral categories, not in their civil categories, not in their thoughts about what it means to be human, not 
in their hopes for the world and what it might look like in the future. In fact, by just about every way of measuring it, they were the polar opposite of Judaism. And on top of that, there was no little amount of animosity often between them and Jewish people. But here they are now. Right? Believing in a Jewish Messiah, worshiping in synagogues and in Jewish homes, learning to live with, learning to love people they had formerly wanted nothing to do with, people they used to look down on. And of course, there is only one thing in the world that can do that kind of thing. There's only one thing that has that kind of power to make enemies drop their arms and stop strangling each other and start uh, eating together and praying together and loving together and serving together around a common purpose. There's only one thing that can do that. It isn't politics. It isn't some economic scheme. It's it's not some great philosophy or, or work of art. I mean, at their best, at their most flourishing and true, then sometimes politics and economics and art can point to that thing, but they're not the thing. The only thing that makes peace where there was absolutely no human way of making peace before is Jesus' cross. That's what Paul has been saying to his friends in this letter just a few verses before where we started reading. This is what he said. Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he has made one new humanity in the place of two. One new humanity. That's the point that Paul's been making. The cross is God's way of making a new humanity. And we need to understand that Paul's vision of this new humanity, it's not hazy. It's not some conceptual thing. <laughs> it's not vague. This new humanity has a name. And she is called the church. And right away, Paul wants to make it crystal clear that this church is very much a home. The New Testament uses a bunch of different metaphors to talk about the church. All of them are rich. All of them are beautiful in their own ways. Sometimes the church gets compared to a body of which Christ is the head. And in other places, the church is called a bride of whom Christ is the groom, the husband. And here, Paul is emphasizing another image, the church as a home. As he puts it in verse 19, the household of God. It's a home. Here, you're not strangers anymore. You're not aliens. You're not refugees. You're not the unknown. You're citizens here. In Paul's words, you are fellow citizens with all of the saints. You're citizens of this new humanity that has been crafted by grace. And this new humanity, it's not a political or, or national entity. This is not about voting rights. This is about being daughters and sons. It's about having a place to live 
It's about having a home. And so here in this text in Ephesians, I, I, I think that all of what we have been talking about in the creed since the beginning of the fall back in September, all of it begins to, to come together and coalesce in this beautiful tapestry that we're daughters and sons of, of God the Father Almighty because of the work of Jesus Christ, His only Son, whose cross and resurrection and ascension have broken down every barrier that stood between us and the Father and us and one another. And the Holy Spirit is the architect of our new home. And that home is what we call a church. And that movement is seamless and it's beautiful. And I hope you'll let me say it like this. This is what God has been up to since before the foundation of the world. This home, Paul says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone of the whole thing is Jesus. He is the foundation piece that makes this fascinating and compelling and gorgeous house into a home. A home where outcasts and strangers and fools and cowards and fakes and sanctimonious moralists and hollow hedonists and the very successful and the very unsuccessful and the wealthy and the poor and the squared away and, and the goofy and the normal and the odd and the liberal and the conservative and even mortal enemies can come together in the peace, in the flourishing, in the wholeness, in the newness that we were always meant to have. That's the church, and it has been God's project and his passion and his love and his goal for a very, very, very long time. And that is, I think, very good news for people like you and me, the far-off ones. <laughs> so what does this mean? for people like us? Well, I think it means lots and lots of things, but let me just suggest two. First, this means that we cannot be Christians without the church. I'm aware uh, that that goes against the grain of a lot of popular received wisdom that's swirling around these days, so let me make sure that I say it again so that we can all begin to hear it and maybe believe it. We cannot be Christians without the church. So let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, just think of those images that I mentioned that are used in the New Testament for the church. If you think about those images, you'll know that they are intimate and that they are completely irreducible. Here's what I mean. You cannot have Jesus' head without his body because the head is dead without the body. There's nothing to enliven. There's nothing to animate. You can't invite Jesus to your party and tell him to leave his bride at home because you don't like her and you think she's weird and she says stuff that makes people uncomfortable. You can't do that because if you do that, Jesus isn't coming to your party. He is married. And he is very much in love with his bride. 
and you can't say that you want to be at home with Jesus. And who, who among us doesn't, in the deepest part of who we are, want that to be true? You can't say that you want to be at home with Jesus and not live in the only house he's ever built. There is no other place in this world to live with Jesus. This church is his house. It is his home and ours. I know, okay? I, believe me, I know. I know that there is a very strong impulse that's related to all kinds of reasons that are particular to our own place in history, our own cultural place in history. There's all kinds of reasons that are related to our particular way of thinking about self and thinking about individual that, that, that go against this, that make us want to be all about Jesus on the one hand and then on the other hand to distance ourselves from his church. You know, I like Jesus a lot, but it's his bride, it's his people that I can't stand. I, I understand that impulse. I understand it really clearly. And on probably bad days, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it. But here's the truth. Jesus won't have any of that. Because he didn't come so that you and I could have these little interior spiritual transactions with him in the privacy of our personal lives. He came to make a new humanity and to give them a home. And the home that he built for us is called the church. And we desperately need one another. I mean, one of the ways that people like us grow up and mature into the adults that we're made to be in this household is in community with one another. Isolation and avoidance don't grow us up into maturity. So what I'm saying is if, if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking you to make a way, to see what it would take to make a way to serve with these sisters and brothers who are all around you. I'm asking you to think about uh, making a way to, to be with each other more, to, to join in learning and growing together. You know, go to the Young Adults Group, go to Fourth Wednesday, go to the Saturday series on prayer. If you're on the fence about joining a small group, just hop off of the fence and join one. Be more present regularly with each other on Sundays, throughout the week. Talk to each other. Pray for each other. Greet folks that you don't know because we need each other. We cannot be Christians without the church. So that's the first thing. And here's the second thing I want to mention, and we shouldn't take this for granted. I think in particular, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you're thinking about it. Yes, the church is our home, but it is important to remember that the building is not yet finished. You know, there are parts of it that are messed up. There are hallways that we would never want any guest to ever walk down. There's whole rooms that are filled with ruins, and we hope no one opens up those doors. And there's parts of it that need to be teared, torn down so that we can renovate, <laughs> which is just another way of saying that the Holy Catholic Church is not 
yet what she should be. Not here at Covenant, not anywhere. It's a fantasy to imagine that it might be. And so the invitation to follow Jesus and and therefore to become a member of his household is not an invitation to a family that has it all figured out. It's not an invitation to a family that always acts right all of the time. I'm sorry if you have gotten that impression. I am especially sorry if you have been put off or beaten down by that because it is absolutely not true. The invitation to follow Jesus and be a part of his household is, however, an invitation to join a family of people who are taken with grace and who are doing the best they can. In fits and in starts for sure. (laughs) To love God and to love one another and to love their neighbors. And when we do this together, when we love God and one another and our neighbors together, then that, that thing, as we do it more and more and get better and better at it together, that final thing that Paul says about the church in verse 22 becomes more and more evident all around us. The church is built up together into a dwelling place for God. We become the place where God is. We become the place where God's grace and his goodness and who he is is seen and heard and felt and experienced in this broken, hurting world, desperate for a home. That's who this church is. This is the life that we have been called to live together. This is what we profess to be true when we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have, through the work of your Son and through the beautiful architectural work of the Holy Spirit that we can't even begin to fathom, we thank you that you have made us a home, a household that you have made us a place to be. (laughs) And so we ask, Father, that we would not pretend that we don't need it, that we would be happy to live in it together. Father, surely do this for our good as, as a church, do this for our good so that we can grow and mature as we're supposed to, but do this also for the good of this broken world all around us so that they will see you in us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.